If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7 this morning, looking at verse 14 specifically. We'll be looking in the book of Isaiah over these next few weeks, but we'll be bouncing around a little bit uh, throughout the book, going from one spot to the next. But we are this morning in Isaiah, chapter 7, looking at verse 14, which should be on the screen behind me if you aren't able to find it in time. Isaiah 7.14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. The reason Christmas is a season, rather than simply a day, is because it's inherently a time where we're looking forward to something. The day itself would be just as fun, probably, I think, if you're just focusing on what the day is and what happens on the day, if you did everything that the day does on, like, September 15th. If you woke up on that day, had a bunch of presents, a bunch of decorations in the house, a bunch of food to eat, with a bunch of family to go see, I think that day itself would be closely the the amount of fun, the amount of experience that we have on our Christmas days with all the things we've built up around it. But because the coming of Jesus Christ into the world is so great, and the day on which we celebrate that Advent is so great for so many of us, there's just too much greatness for only that one day, right? We would miss something if we didn't have the buildup, if we didn't have the season, the time, the the songs, the lights, the decorations, the movies, the hot chocolate, the exchanges, the parties. If it didn't all build up to something, I think we would feel like it was less than. Like, if all we had was the one day, it wouldn't feel like Christmas itself was as much of a deal as it is for us. It wouldn't feel as full if all we did was have the thing itself, the one day, rather than also having the build-up to the thing. And I think we tend to do the same thing sometimes in thinking about the coming of Jesus himself, even particularly the Christmas story. I mean, Luke 2 is what talks specifically about the birth of Jesus. That's the thing itself. And it is great. It absolutely is great. But its greatness is such that it's enhanced by having a season, a time, looking forward to that greatness which has now arrived. We can see, we can understand and appreciate Luke 2 better when we focus a little more, I think, on the buildup, on the anticipation for the coming of Jesus. The whole Old Testament really is building up to his arrival from as early as Genesis 3 to as late as Malachi 4. So these next four weeks, we'll be looking primarily at the buildup to Christmas, at the prophecies just in Isaiah, though there are obviously more that speak to the birth and coming of the new king, the Messiah, that the whole world's been waiting on. So we'll be bouncing around Isaiah a little bit over these next few weeks to hit on what I think are the clearest passages talking about the birth of Jesus and why he came. But before we get into that, just a little background to Isaiah so you kind of know what's happening in this text specifically this morning. Isaiah was written by a prophet covering a really wide span in Judah's history. He came on the scene immediately after King Uzziah died. So he's following after a period of prosperity, a period in which the the kingdom was in a pretty good spot. It's never perfect, but it was a, a good kingdom under a good king. And then he dies. He becomes king at 16, reigns for 52 years. And 2 Kings 15.3 says that he did what was right in the Lord's sight. Perhaps that's the best summary you can get as a king in this time, was that you did what was right uh, in the Lord's sight. He wasn't perfect. 
He didn't do everything exactly right. He didn't nail all things, but things were generally good. And then he dies after this long period of being under such a good king. And the nation's in fear. The nation's struggling. The nation's looking at the next king and knowing he's not going to be as good. They're looking around at the nations around them and thinking, who's going to end up conquering us? It's a period of confusion and despair. And into this time, immediately after King Uzziah dies, God sends Isaiah his prophet. He commissions him in Isaiah 6, a passage you're probably familiar with. And then this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7 is really the, the first, the central message that he has to give to the people. It's a proclamation of hope, which is going to come through God's servant, through his Messiah, the anointed one, who is going to be an even better king than Uzziah was. And in today's text, we're going to see three promises of the coming Messiah that's being foretold in this text. Three promises of the coming Messiah in today's verses. And the first promise of the coming Messiah that we can see in today's text is that the Messiah will enact God's own plan. When he comes, as he's being promised to come in this verse in Isaiah chapter 7, when he comes, he's going to come to enact the very plan of God, which we can see in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. In the context of the passage, God had told the king, he said, hey, ask me for a sign. And the king refused. So that's why the, the, the verse begins with, therefore, the king had refused to ask for a sign. But now, because the king has refused to ask, God is going to provide his own sign. He said, I don't even need you to ask. I'm giving you the same sign anyway. It doesn't matter that the new king isn't playing along, that he doesn't know what to do, that he always seems to do the wrong thing. God here is providing the sign anyway. He's enacting his plans anyway. He is so surely going to enact his plans through this promised Messiah that the Messiah is going to come through a virgin birth. Something we'll talk about more here in just a second. But the point here is that Ahaz, the new king, he wasn't possible for him to be able to thwart the plans of God by not doing what God asked him to do. So the Lord himself will give the sign. You don't have to provide it. You don't have to bring anything to the table. He's going to do it himself through this coming king. And I think that communicates something intentional here too. God, he's not divided in focus or power. We know he's everywhere and all-knowing. So there's really nothing that he does that he doesn't do himself, that he doesn't do intentionally. But when we hear this language that God himself will do it, I think it's there to remind us of the, the focus that God has in this instance. That though he is doing all things all the time, there's in some way a special sense in which he's enacting this plan. That everything else is really in service of this plan that he has here. When a quarterback throws several passes and they all get dropped, and then he just decides to run it in the end zone himself on the next play, sometimes you'll hear the announcer say, well, he just decided to do it himself. When I was uh, playing t-ball growing up, I played first base. And the thing about playing first base is that you can do almost nothing yourself. No one ever hits the ball to you. They hit it somewhere else, and they have to throw it to you. And whenever you're playing with the people that I played with, that meant that they were throwing it everywhere but at you. It was like way off every time. So my coaches, their favorite thing was whenever someone would finally hit the ball to first base because they could go, oh, he can just do it himself. He doesn't need anyone else to do this here. There's a special sense of focus in which he's able to just take it and do it. He's not relying on anyone else. He's not allowing anyone else to get in his way. A lot growing up, I heard 
People say, I'll just do it myself. And that was never a good thing. I asked you to take out the trash, and yet you're still sitting here, and that trash is still full. I guess I'll just do it myself. And there's a sense in which that's what God is doing here. He's doing it himself. He's not willing to allow even a secondary cause that he would usually use in such an instance to be able to enact something. He is not saying, I'll even let you be a part of this. I am so intent on getting this done, I'm going to do it. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The quarterback here won't risk the wide receiver dropping it. The first baseman, he's not going to risk pitching it to the pitcher as he comes over. The parent here is not going to risk the trash still being full when the company arrives. God here, he won't risk any ambiguity in this sign, in his plan coming about. I mean, when you get to virgin births, you know that God's involved. So from the very beginning of this Messiah's life, nothing can be attributed to anyone but God. But what he gives here isn't really the fullness of his plan, at least not in this verse, not in this text. But he gives a sign There's more to it. There's more to come here. And in the particulars of the sign, we we see this idea come through that God is doing something. He's working. But what we see him doing is really only the beginning of the work. When a virgin conceives, when, when a baby is born, that's inherently like the start of things. That's not the culmination of things. It's not the fullness of things. It's the beginning of things. I have one child, one more on the way, And let me tell you, conception and birth was really just like the start of my job. The start of whatever it is that I'm going to be doing. No one at a birth thinks that this is the end of the road for them. No one, when the baby shows up, says, all right, cool, good job, great work, honey, we did it, high five, we birthed that baby, yes, we did it, I was there, I helped in the room. I'm sure the hospital can take care of things from here. We're going to go back home. We're going to go back to date nights and a pristine house. The baby, we did it. It's, it's born, fine, our job is done. No, they make you take it home. <laughs> That's like the, the thing. Like the birth is just the beginning. JC is way more work now than she ever was whenever she was like in the womb. Especially for me, I didn't do anything. And I think you'll attest that, like, yeah, the birth, that's the beginning of things. That's when things begin in this. So whenever he gives a sign, he's giving a sign that is the sign of something greater to come. That even as great as it is, there is something more coming. Birth, as big of a milestone, as big of a finish line as that is in a lot of ways, it's just the beginning. So even this miraculous virgin birth that's given to us as a sign as great as that is, as big of a culmination as that is, there's more to come after it. By God himself working to give this sign of the virgin birth, he's signaling that he is starting something new, that he's beginning something new amongst his people, that this is just the, the first step toward what he has coming. But he's also saying that he is actively engaged in every step along the way. The birth of this coming Messiah will enact God's own plans. And The way that baby comes, I think, gives us an insight into what that plan is. Because the Messiah will also have God's own life. That's the second promise of the coming Messiah. He will have God's own life as he enacts God's own plan. Look back at verse 14. 
Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. I mean, this is why it's a miracle, right? This is why it's a sign of God. A baby being born, in a sense, yes, that's a miracle. But it's an everyday miracle. It's a miracle that happens all the time. When we were in the hospital and JC was being born, our doctor was going between one room that we were in and another room that another baby was being born in. And he was just going back and forth, taking bets as to who was going to get to the finish line first. A baby being born, that wouldn't be a sign of anything. That's nothing. That's just like Tuesday. But a baby being born to a virgin is a miraculous sign that doesn't come along very often. A virgin birth, though, that's something. I mean, virgins don't give birth. That's counter to how everything else in the world works. The sign of this baby being born is that the mother is still a virgin, and yet there's a child here. That's crazy. I mean, there should be no life here, right? There are not the conditions necessary for life to occur, so we assume that it shouldn't. We assume that it can't. Astronomers, whenever they think about our planet, whenever they think about the Earth, a lot of people look out at the vast stars and planets and galaxies, and they assume just statistically, that number of planets, there has to be intelligent life somewhere else. But astronomers, they don't do that. Because astronomers are looking at those planets and saying, yeah, like, that's a ball of something, but that one is too close to a star. Its water is actually just going to be gas. That one is too far from a star. Its water is going to be ice. That one doesn't have a moon, so there's no way they can uh, have life created and stay on it because the, the asteroids are just going to take it all out. That one's actually too close to a big planet. It's going to take everything, and it's going to fall out of its orbit. In order for everything to exist, in order for the conditions for life to actually be there, everything has to be exactly, perfectly there. You have to have all those conditions. Close enough, but not too close. Far enough away with the right orbit. You have to have a moon. You have to have a a big planet that's close by. It's going to take all the other asteroids away. If you don't have all those things, you don't have life. So though you might look at all the planets and say, surely there's got to be something, an astronomer looks at that and goes like, no. There's no other option. This is the one. This is the only one we've found which has all of the conditions necessary for life to exist in a way that we see it. So when astronomers look out at all those planets, it's not like Star Trek. It's not like there's always new people, always new animals to encounter on new worlds. They look at them all and they say, too hot, too cold. Too small, too big, too whatever. Because there are not the conditions for life, we assume that it doesn't, that it can't exist. And by all rights, it shouldn't. You need certain things to have life. You need certain ingredients to make a baby. And virgins do not have those. And yet, this virgin will conceive and bear a son. In this instance, though life shouldn't exist, it does. Though there's no way anyone would look at this scenario and think that life could possibly come from it, it does. Because this coming Messiah is here to enact God's own plan, he brings with him God's own life. He doesn't need the conditions that are normally required to have life because he has life in himself, because he's God in the flesh. 
Because he is the God who simply is, who existed before all things, who created all things, and in whom all things hold together. He doesn't need the normal conditions for life to occur in order to have life, because he's the one who brings the conditions with him. He's the one who creates the life when those conditions are present. This promise of life where there should be none, it's actually a really common theme in the Bible. God makes clear that he is the one who gives life and even especially grants it where there tends not to be the conditions necessary for there to be so. When God made Adam in Genesis 2, he didn't just make man, he took dust and breathed life into it. There's nothing more dead than dust, right? I mean, when you die, whether you are cremated or buried, you're going to end up as dust either way. Give it enough time, eventually. I mean, when you think about dust, dust might as well be death. And yet God takes that dust and he brings his own life into it. In Ezekiel 37, God takes Ezekiel out over a valley that's filled with dry bones and he tells him to speak, to prophesy over the bones. And when he does, they spring forth to life. They grow muscles and skin. He said one chapter earlier that he would take their hearts of stone and make them hearts of flesh. He's bringing life where there shouldn't be any. Later in Isaiah, several times, he promises to bring rivers to the desert, to bring gardens to the desert. He's going to a place that is barren and dry. And in that place where there should be nothing, he sends life and health. From beginning to end, from Old Testament to New, he is going to places where there should be no life, and he is creating it. He's granting it in his glory and in his grace. And I think the virgin birth is the perfect example of God fulfilling all these promises. Where there should be no life, he brings it, he grants it by himself, from himself. And when the Messiah comes, he brings that life with him to give to all who come to him. I think we have to clearly see and understand the gospel implications here. I mean, we, all of us who are in Christ, we were dead in our sin and trespasses in which we once walked until God granted life where there shouldn't be any, until God opened our eyes when he granted us new life by grace through faith. Our hearts were stone, they weren't flesh. Our bones were dry, they weren't lively. Your soul, it was a desert, not a garden. And with the coming of Christ, the one born from a virgin, by his own life, by his own perfection, through repentance and faith, you now have life where there shouldn't be any. The gospel story, Christ's gospel work, it is a story of bringing life to a place where there should be none. And if you've experienced that, I think you know that that's what that is. But let me ask you if you still believe that he does this. I mean, you can see, you can feel, you can tell that he did this for you. But do you still think that he can grant life where there shouldn't be any in the people around you? Do you still think that he's capable of softening the heart of that family member that, man, it just doesn't feel like they're listening? just doesn't feel like they get it. It doesn't matter how many sermons they've listened to, how many times you've talked about it. It just feels like it's not sinking in. Do you still think today that he can build gardens in the desert heart of that friend who just seems too far gone, who just seems like they have no interest in anything you're talking about, who seems like they have no connection to you now in your new life? 
God, with his Messiah coming, is granting life where there shouldn't be any. Where we only see the conditions necessary for death, for anti-life, for no life. And that place specifically is where the Messiah comes to bring life. His promise here is that he will give life where there shouldn't be any. Then he gives the virgin birth as an example, as a proof of that promise. And if he can have a virgin give birth, what can't he do? When we're talking about death and life, there's not really like degrees. There's not like, I don't know, it was like basically life. No, there's alive and there is dead. So if he can cause you to come alive, you who were dead in your sin then surely he can do that same thing for them, whoever they are, whoever they may be. I think sometimes we forget this. Sometimes I think we need to be reminded that because God grants salvation, because he gives life out of himself, he can grant it to anyone, even to the person that you think is too far gone. And the life he gives, when he gives it, it's not just a flicker of a heartbeat. It's not just something that might possibly seem like it's life. It's not like he gives full life, but he gives a terrible life, a miserable life. The one who is promised, who will come to life where there should only be death, it's not an orphan here that he's talking about. It's not the runt of the litter here that he's talking about. No, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, will bear the firstborn, will bear the next in line, the one who will receive the full inheritance of the father the one who is the pride and joy of the Father, the one who is a part of the family. You see, when God gives life in his kingdom through his gospel, from the Messiah, that life that he gives, that life he grants, it's not second-rate life. It's not less than life. It's not just the next best thing that he could grant in this kind of scenario. He doesn't bring you to life to leave you out in the cold. He breathes into the dust and then he calls that dust that he has now brought to life his son. He grants full family status to the one who doesn't deserve it through his gospel, through this promised Messiah who was born of a virgin. This child, Jesus, who was promised, he brings God's life with him to grant it to God's people according to God's plan. And the end result of that plan is that God's own presence comes down to his people. That's the third promise of the coming Messiah. He will bring God's own presence. Look back at verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. You probably have a footnote in your Bible that explains the meaning, the, the translation of Emmanuel, that word. that says either, either God with us or God is with us. We'll talk about that more explicitly here in a moment. But before we get there, let me emphasize that this is the child's name. This is the Messiah's name. And in this case, the name is given before the child is even conceived, before the virgin is pregnant, before the miraculous happens. So the name, as part of this prophecy, it's also part of the promise here. It's information given before it's obvious. It's not just, wow, that virgin is pregnant with a child, therefore God must be with us. It's no, 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 God will be with us, therefore the virgin will conceive and bear a son. By naming the child Emmanuel before he arrives, 
I think there's an added level of hope here. There's an added level of anticipation and looking forward here. That though when Isaiah heard this prophecy, that things were pretty bleak, that the kingdom was in a rough spot, and nothing seemed to be going right, nothing seemed to be happening as it was supposed to be, that they were looking around and thinking, we're about to get conquered. They were looking at the new king and thinking, things are only going to get worse. That in this time, in this place, he gives this prophecy. And in this, they know that there is a dawn breaking on the horizon. That they know whenever they see the sign, whenever they see that the virgin conceives, that this is the beginning of something new. It's the beginning of something great, something different. They can know that God is coming to set all things right, to enact his plans when the virgin conceives, because this child is God with us. This child is the beginning, the sign of the greater work that's going to come through the life of this child, which he brings with him for his people. The name is a promise that is with you and will be with you. It's a promise that God's presence can be yours, that God's presence is for his people. And what a promise that is. Things may be bleak for you. Things may be tough for you. You may be looking around right now for signs and not yet finding any. I may have described the wonder of Christmas at the beginning of this sermon, and you thought, man, I don't feel that. I don't see that. That's not something I've ever experienced before. This is actually the first Christmas without this person. This Christmas only reminds me of the child that I would have had. You might look around at even something as great as this season, and in this season feel only pain. You might be surrounded by pain and death and sin, not thinking that there is any life to be had in the midst of these circumstances. And into that world, into that circumstance, God sends his promise that the virgin will conceive, that she will bear a son, and that you can call his name Emmanuel, that you can know that God not only brings life, but he brings his presence to his people. His name will remind you that God is with you now when you hear the prophecy, even before you start to see the sign. And his birth, that's going to remind you that he's working through this child to enact the prophecy. He's with you when you're stuck in sin and death. And he's with you as he brings that death into life. The Messiah who was promised, Jesus, the one whose birth we celebrate in this season, he is not a lackey that was sent to do God's bidding. He's not a subcontractor that God hired because he couldn't be bothered with it. No, 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 God himself is doing this, and he is sending God himself to accomplish it. That God himself will be with his people. He is God in the flesh, bringing with him God's own presence. The beauty of Christmas, the wonder of Christmas, is that through this event of Jesus being born, God has now come to his people. He is now with his people, in the midst of his people, enacting his own plans among us. That's worth celebrating. That's worth a season of celebrating. More than that, a life of celebrating. And this time, as our service begins to draw to a close, as we are going to go back and sing that song again, we're going to sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, O come, God be with us. 
And you probably know I love Christmas songs. There's a week in July every year that I just to say, it's Christmas in July, Christmas songs, Christmas time. I look forward to it. There are times when I'm home alone and I think, you know what? Elf would be like a good movie to watch right now. And it's August. I love this season. It's always been my favorite. I love these songs. And this one, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it may be my favorite Christmas carol. It would be one that I think, like, we could sing this all year. We could pull this out in March and it would still be worth singing. I would absolutely do that and have no problem with it. But I get that you might not be with me. You might think that would be strange. So I don't anticipate us doing that. But as we sing these words together, I want us to focus on the the hope and the promise of these words. That God himself has come down to his people in the person of Jesus Christ to enact his plans by saving us from our sins, by giving us his own life and granting us his own presence. And when we sing this song, we are singing to the one who came, to the one who was promised in Isaiah 7.14. He came in the New Testament, the revelation of God, Jesus Christ, the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. So when we sing these words, when we say, oh, come, let's sing as if we actually are singing to him. I mean, I said, I love these songs, I love this season, but we don't just sing these Christmas hymns because I like them. We don't just sing these Christmas hymns because we don't hear them as much as you used to. We don't just sing these Christmas hymns because it reminds you of when you were a kid. We're singing these hymns because they proclaim his coming to us. They remind us why we gather as we look forward to the day when we celebrate his coming on Christmas Day. But we are also looking forward to when he comes again in glory. That we now can sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, not just as if we were back in Isaiah's time looking forward to his first coming, but even now as we can look forward to his second coming. So when we sing these words, let's sing them like we're actually singing them to the one who is God with us. Like we actually want him to come and ransom we who mourn in exile here until he appears. Like we're desperately pleading for the rod of Jesse to free us from Satan's tyranny. To save us from the depths of hell and the grave. Saying like he is the day spring of life. Who can disperse the clouds of night. Who can put the shadows of death to flight. That's what we're asking him to do when we sing for him to come. So I hope that today, every day, we'll be able to do that with all we've got. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to be able to to come together with your people, to, to sing these words with your people, to hear these promises with your people. But God, more than that, thank you for coming to be among your people. Thank you for giving us the sign. Thank you for enacting your own plans through Jesus Christ who came to save us, to ransom us from sin and death. Help for us to remember these words, to think over them in this season, to not be distracted by all the things around us that we've built up around us, to to try to help us point forward to this, to not be distracted by those things, but to be focused on the substance of the thing, the essence of the thing. 
Help for us in whatever circumstances we've come into this room to know that you can bring life where there should only be death. To know that in the midst of a world that may sometimes be bleak and scary and dark, that behold, we have seen a great light. Thank you for the sign that you've given us, that the virgin would conceive and bear a son, and that we can call his name Emmanuel, that you would be with us. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.